A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, welcome back to Whatever Next. Um, this is our third episode, and today we'll be talking about going back to China. I'm one of your hosts, Addie, and I'm here with Hannah and Joe. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Hannah. In this episode, we're going to be talking about experiences of our own trips going back to China and living abroad. We're also going to be talking about how the topic going back often is paired with invasive questions related to birth searching. Um, we're going to be talking about different narratives that relate to going back to China and patterns of adoptive parents' fears on their child possibly going back to their birth country as well. telling us about earlier like how often do you get asked about going back to China and questions about birth parents from strangers yeah I think that those questions mainly come up when you first tell someone you're adopted it's like oh oh I'm sorry you're adopted and then it's like do you know your birth parents or have you ever gone back to China where are your birth parents (laughs) how does that make you feel um I mean normally if I'm if I'm telling someone I'm adopted, I'm open about that. And that's okay. Cause if I, I would probably ask those questions, but without sort of knowing more about adoption in, in that sense, um, what to ask and what not to ask. But if a stranger asked me that I would be, yeah, it's quite invasive. And I normally just say, oh, I don't know, or something like a, a short one liner, which they won't really follow up on. Just nip it in the bud. Yeah. Just kind of try to end the conversation. Yeah. I remember when I was younger, I would just lie sometimes and just say, or I wouldn't just to avoid questions like that. I, when people would ask, um, who are your parents or like, where are your parents from? Mm-hmm. I would just say from China and then they would, then that would be it. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I was adopted or had one parents because I, I knew the questions would just like pile and pile on if, especially mm. if they were strangers mm. but if it was somebody like a friend of a friend where I couldn't do that because <laughs> they knew me but or like somebody who I would have more patience for then I would explain everything but a lot of the times if, if it was just somebody in a restaurant or somebody like passing by or like mm. yeah I would just be like 
Yeah, I'm from Korea. <laughs> <laughs> My parents came here, <laughs> but but no, yeah. How about you, Joe? I think it's funny sometimes the I don't want to say audacity, but like the I suppose the lack of boundaries that some strangers maybe it's because they are a stranger that they in a way feel more comfortable kind of asking those direct questions or maybe it's like you know born of awkwardness or just kind of well it's curiosity isn't it but that people do kind of they don't sometimes they just don't think about what those questions can bring up and so they'll just ask them and like they can catch you at weird moments like you'll Mm -hmm. be I don't know um at someone's house for dinner or like even like someone's in the shops like just waiting in line and I think you get used to answering them so they don't kind of like trigger you um or like Mm -hmm. really bring up big things but I think for some people they can and also sometimes on the wrong day a bit like oh but yeah <laughs> yeah it can really catch you off guard when you've had a good day or something and then suddenly yeah it can bring up a lot of emotions mm. but I suppose like part of this as well this project I mean like I think I've definitely got a lot more comfortable about talking about those type of things and asking those questions because we have had to answer them so many times mm. um but it's this weird thing where I think sometimes I feel like I'm on a bit of a script and you feel it's kind of on you to make life the situation and kind of like ease them back into something that's more relatable for them and more kind of like acceptable for like whatever setting you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, like, because I usually try to like laugh it off or like bring it back something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys do that. Yeah, I think yeah, like whatever next like project, um, doing like these episodes and stuff. I because we answer questions like that so regularly through our life and it's just like for me has been the same every time until a few years ago or I guess until like um I've gotten older and have really thought about how can I answer these questions differently in a way that like I don't feel I was being um, interrogated interrogated in a way that I can still feel like I have power in my voice Mm. rather than just having to answer these questions because somebody asked me them Mm. like answering them in a way that I would feel okay with mm. I guess if that makes sense <laughs> yeah because I mean you don't owe the a stranger anything like any explanation to you and your life but I mm-hmm. think sometimes people feel that you do mm-hmm. so how old were you the first time you went back to China um the first time that I went back I was 13 um and my I went back with my mom and my aunt and my mom made it a point for me and my sisters to all get to travel back when we turned 12 or 13 on her own. So when I turned 13, I went back with my mom. And then when Lena turned 13, um, she went back to Vietnam with my mom too. So she got her trip to go. And then Nora went back, um, I think when she was like 12 or 13 on her own as well. Mm-hmm. So we all kind of got to experience traveling back Mm -hmm. for the first time I think for me I was so young that Mm -hmm. I really was only concerned about skipping school for two (laughs) weeks um and getting to be on a little holiday (laughs) but it was yeah it was the first time that I had traveled outside of the country other than like going to Mexico I think but so it was a big big culture shock and in a good way, mm. I really enjoyed like the whole trip. And we like went around six different cities and ate lots of food. And I don't know, just, just spent time. But I think if I had gone back when I was 18, maybe, I think that the, that the like concept of going back mm. to your birth country, mm. this is the time would have 
sunk in more, I think, because that whole part of being an adoptee, going back to your birth country, didn't really, it kind of went over my head, I feel like. And I was more concerned about just like getting to visit a new country in general. Mm -hmm. I did go back to my orphanage though. And like my province when, when we went and we went back to the the building and they kind of showed us around at the time, the facility had turned into more of an orphanage for older kids with disabilities. So it wasn't, I guess, the same Mm. kind of place as when I was uh, a baby, there were many babies really. And so it was more of like a long-term facility for children with disabilities who had been abandoned, I guess. But so like they pointed out my room and I remember just like looking through the window and they're like, that's your room. That was where you were. And I was just like, cool. cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And my mom took a picture of me in front of the the window and I was just like, okay. 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 (laughs) I'm hungry. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it was just because I was so young. I was only 13. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember telling my, I think I told you this already, but, um, at, the culture camp where the conference for families who would um, come across the U.S. to go to this conference for families who've adopted kids from Vietnam. So it included the parents and the, and the kids. And as a older teenager adoptee, I think I was like maybe 18 or 17 mm-hmm. at the time, I was retelling the story to them about going back to the orphanage and not really like feeling anything, not in a bad way, just as a 13 year old, <laughs> but the whole room of parents who were listening, um, gasped <laughs> in shock because they're just like, Oh my God, that's so sad. She didn't feel anything <laughs> when she went back to her orphanage. And I was trying to explain to them, no, I, I think it's just because of the age thing Mm -hmm. like how we've said before I didn't really think about my adoptee identity until I was 20 Mm -hmm. really so this whole experience as a 13 year old I mean is from like two different two different worlds but I think as adoptive parents hearing an older adoptee say that I think that was really like for them sad to hear but only because the whole going back to your birth country is really so romanticized, but it really depends on if they're ready or not, how old they are, you know, mm-hmm. if they're in that headspace too. And as a 13 year old, I was not. So. <laughs> so the last time I went back to China was when I was 10 years old in 2011 Easter. Um, and that was for a couple of weeks. And I went with my parents, mom and dad and we joined, we were in like a group, I think it was called Exodus, um, like a travel group mm-hmm. where you're with other kids um, and families and then you travel around parts of China. I can't remember the exact route, but... When you went back as a 10-year-old, did you go back to your province or your hometown? Yeah, so we did um, for a couple of days, I think. But I, yeah, it's like a similar situation really that because I was so young, I was a holiday and you're thinking, oh, this is fun. I'm with other kids because I'm an only child. And it's like, oh, you're on a holiday with other kids. And that's fun to play with and things. And then when we went around Nanning, which was the city I was adopted from, I can't really remember. I just remember that it's very hazy because of all the pollution and things. And I just remember we went around a park and there was some exercise, <laughs> like an exercise park. I don't know what they are with the 
the, like, monkey the, bars or the bikes uh-huh. or something. I, that was like my main memory, <laughs> which probably shouldn't be like looking back. But yeah, obviously, if you if I went back now, it would mean so much more. I look at it as a different light, a, a deeper connection in that sense, and really appreciating being there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, what about you, Joe? Did you? You and I know. I mean, I definitely. So the first time I went back, I was eight, and it went over my head completely. But I think, especially with this whole kind of like going back to China, going back to your birth country, and then the questions that lead on to going back for birth search, I feel like as adoptees, there's this kind of expectation. It's like there's almost like trauma mining when people talk to us about these things that we're they kind of expect you to have these really extreme and um, deep emotions, which like yes are associated with them, but they you're kind of expected to have them ready to share and. It's the trauma, isn't it, that people are, they want to hear about how it affects you and how it governs your day-to-day kind of interactions. And I think there's quite a lot of expectation and kind of pressure sometimes that adoptees feel to kind of answer that and be present. And I know that we've talked about this mm-hmm. a lot in some of the interviews and talks that we've done that, yes, this is an element of it and it's one that should be brought up because there is that culture of silence that has kind of governed previous generations of adoptees. But also within that, we want to look at other issues within adoptions but people just get so fixated mm-hmm. on this kind of the birth search and that and it feeds into again what we've been saying about the missing piece narrative and that like as an adoptee you will always be somehow incomplete until you've made that step to find and if you do find your birth family mm-hmm. yeah I think that the the whole like expectation to share thing yeah. is, is a really good way to put it or try to explain it to other people who might not see the impact that it has on adoptees because it's something I think every single adoptee can relate to and like the question of birth searching and the expectation to share. And it starts at such a young age too. Like, I mean, expecting like an eight-year-old to, how do you feel yeah. about that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and even up to like, if they're an adult and maybe their adoptee identity isn't a part of them, but they're still constantly asked questions like this and being expected to share their whole process of emotions and their like their trauma and how they started here and now they're there and like yeah I don't know it's just a lot a lot to ask somebody I think yeah that with expecting to give an answer and things that after I came back from that trip when I was 10 there were people who were asking and now just looking back at it when they were like oh so how was it and then it was like how was it it's like, <laughs> it's just like two different meanings of sort of um, like how was the holiday in general or how are you feeling like what is was the impact of you going back to your birth country and things trying to get more out of it or but then I do think it's a shifting relationship and like that's also what we've said again and again that you know adoption is an identity that will fluctuate across the lifetime but as an eight-year-old I was like sweet this is a really nice holiday with great food but then going back as a 15-year-old and then going back as an um 18 year old and then also to live there as a student for a bit that those trips were very like very different for me each time and it's I think growing up and kind of having more of an awareness of the the differences and the cultural differences that I was experiencing as somebody who looked Chinese in China and also somebody who looked Chinese in England and just feeling kind of quite disconnected um to both cultures in different ways Mm-hmm. Um, and so that definitely impacts how you feel kind of returning to your birth country. Um, I don't know, it's that weird thing where like 
in China, like I look like, I mean, my birth father said to me, so I said, I feel like I should explain this, but um, well, so when I was um, 18, I went back and I thought I did actually do a birth search and I did find my birth family. And I remember my birth father saying to me one day that, you know, if you stood very, very still, shut your mouth, um, I could mistake you for a local girl, but everything else about you, you know, your body language and um, your mannerisms just screams for foreigner. Like I can see it in the way that you walk. And it's just, it's those weird I suppose narcissisms of small differences that we as humans kind of hone in upon, but it was just that it was like very clear that you know I I can I look Chinese sometimes, but I think I have a very like Westernized mindset is what I'm bound towards mm-hmm. um, because I am a product of <laughs> my my upbringing. Yeah, 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 I got that a lot too when I was um, living in Vietnam, even though I'm not. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Vietnamese, but (laughs) um, I think a lot of people from a distance, I could blend in in a crowd just with a large crowd. And I really enjoyed that aspect of living in an Asian country, just being able to kind of blend in until people saw me really. And so, yeah, saw my mannerisms and they were like, you're not from around here, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Especially when I opened my mouth (laughs) and started speaking English with an American accent. But yeah, it is kind of in the, in between being, being Asian in an Asian country as an American and then being Asian in America. <laughs> and I feel like we do a whole other, a couple of episodes on that, but that kind of that expat experience as well in Asia is very different and also experiencing it as an Asian woman as well. That mm-hmm. like definitely colours the way that you interact with people and people view you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And when you were both in China and Vietnam, did people come up to you 
and immediately speak in Mandarin or Cantonese or Vietnamese or anything? Uh, yeah, yeah, all, all the time. They would they would ask me a question or start speaking to me, and then like give, um, look at me in the eyes and knew that it was just like my face head blank. Empty. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's nothing up here. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay. Or like I would just say, um, I don't speak Vietnamese. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of people would come up. But I mean, I thought that was expected a lot of the time. <laughs> there was there were sometimes like in the market. I would be with Rowan mm. and a lot of the women would just um, ask me questions about what we wanted or how much or whatever. And then Rowan actually ended up while we were there taking Vietnamese lessons and putting a lot more effort into learning language than I, I ever did. So he knew a little bit about like how to interact and I like, hold a conversation. So then I would just like look at him and then <laughs> he would, he would answer to them in Vietnamese. And then they would just be like, what? <laughs> what is going on here? This tall white boy speaking Vietnamese and this Asian girl in front of me cannot. Yeah. <laughs> Does not compete. This doesn't. This doesn't yeah. <laughs> it was funny. So, Joe, you studied in China? Yes, so I was in Shanghai for a year as part of my degree, um, which was a great experience, really great food, but it was also, I think it's hard to explain China to somebody who's never been there, but it's just a an assault on literally every single sense. What do you mean? <laughs> I mean, it's just, I think Hester and her trying to tries to try and convey this, but it's just a country of extremes. And it's, mm. um, I think she talks about these extreme uh, tastes and flavors and smells, but also just like intense heat, intense. It's just like, there's so much happening at all mm-hmm. times. And I think especially in a city like Shanghai, where it's like 24 million people, you just very much feel dwarfed by this kind of giant metropolis and like that there is so much life and buzz just happening all around you um but yeah it was it was very interesting um but the expat um like student culture is also slightly draining it's not dull but it's also not good for the soul and so you were with other students from uni as well What's yeah. that like being with them? Because I'm guessing they would be Caucasian or something. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was like my cohort from uni and then there were also a bunch of other international students there. Um, and I did make some really great friends. There. I had a great time. Um, but it's I don't know if it's one that I would do again. Um, I do like China. It's a bit politically dicey at the minute. I don't know if I go back long term. Hmm. Do you think you would ever want to spend some time there? That would be more than a few months. Oh, good question. Um, I think if I were to, I'd have to have some trial holidays or, I don't know, going out there. Because A, what would I be doing out there for more than a few months? And then because I have been back since, well, oh my gosh, 11 years. Ah. So I don't know what it's really like. And China's changed and developed so fast. Well, so much since then. So at the moment, I can't really say until I've gone out there for a month or something, traveling or doing whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you remember like when you went back when you were 10, like how your parents were feeling? Did you go back with both of them or just with both of them? Yeah, um, I I know that my parents loved the holiday. <laughs> and I don't know, I think maybe going back to what we were talking about earlier, that as an adoptive parent, there is a lot of pressure on them as well as to bringing 
this is their child, so like their adopted child, well, a child back to their birth country, and that uh, must be really emotional for them and as well. So I haven't really discussed it with my parents one-to-one, but I know that when they're answering questions from their friends, it's not like, oh, it was a great holiday and, and mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any, like, a good way to prepare as an adoptee to go back to one's birth country? Or is it just something that people do at their own space? Um, but if you to... were to go, yeah. say, next year, like, what would you be doing to prepare? Um, I, would all, I would like to learn Mandarin. I've been doing a little bit on the side, but very basic conversations. But that, I think, getting the language barrier out, because going to a different culture, different language, that would throw yeah. you off anyway, yeah. whichever, where you were going. And then talking to you guys, to you two. Talking to other adoptees. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to a parent that was asking, what age do you think would be the best age for like their adopted kid to go back to their birth country? I think I would tell them like older, when they're older, maybe. Or even if they want to. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, from my experience, I appreciated going to China, but I just can't really remember it and it just blurs into another, into a holiday. Like, yeah, if they wanted to, then older that they can appreciate the culture and history a bit more. Or... I also think it was a really wasted trip when I was eight. Mm. I think it was still a lovely family holiday and it was, I had that kind of cultural point of reference that even if I didn't kind of emotionally digest or really understand what was going on, I could... I, I, you know, I, 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 I had China context. I suppose it wasn't just mm-hmm. this kind of distant concept. It was mm-hmm. something that I'd seen and kind of, yeah, felt. Um, so I don't know. It's mm-hmm. also it's a tough one, isn't it? There's no perfect answer. Everything's yeah, different. Yeah. But that's a cop answer, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like yeah. like even though I was 13, and in retrospect, I think maybe a little bit too young just for my myself. I feel still like thankful that I still had that trip like mm. with my and being able to go back with my mom because mm. I know like a, a few other adoptees who've never never yeah. been back mm. or their parents aren't really interested or, or encouraging them to think about going back mm. or some adoptive parents of friends have just been like completely no yeah why would you want to go back kind of thing and I can't even think about like imagine I don't know having that kind of dynamic with my with my parents or how that would affect like my ideas on China or going back and like my adoptee identity and stuff but do you do you know any like adoptive have you talked to other adoptive parents who kind of have that attitude like I don't really want my kid to go back or I don't really know what I would do if my kid would want to go back or um I suppose it goes back to what we were saying in the previous um, episode about kind of that removal of ego when it comes to being an adoptive parent and viewing the the situation kind of as something bigger than yourself. I think what governs a lot of parents' fear of w- wanting to engage with their child's um, birth family and kind of birth country is that fear of replacement. And it's because um, remember you, we watched Instant Family when we were in London together and that's something that she brings up that she's just worried that her and these are foster kids at this point but they kind of forget her and go back to their birth mother and it's that odd I don't know I mean abandonment is a very primal and quite visceral feeling but it's I think it's sometimes maybe a shame if 
when adults can't put mm-hmm. things like that aside for their own children. Yeah. Because it's ultimately selfish, isn't it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, because we've also got that. Um, we've got a quote coming up from an anonymous UK adoptee father, which kind of explains, I suppose, what we're trying to articulate. Not <laughs> yeah, it's, um, a, it's a good example of yeah. the thought process mm-hmm. behind it. I would be uneasy only from a selfish point of view and also worried about what you might find. It could be distressing or uplifting for you, but if you wish to find out more, then I suppose you have to follow your instinct. Yeah, which I think is a very honest um, answer. Yeah, I I really like um, how, yeah, he starts out very honest and saying that he would frankly feel very uneasy, but in the end, he still encourages them to follow their their instinct on it which I think is more than what some adoptive parents can do what do you think Hannah Mm. yeah this this seems very supportive and that yeah just having a supportive parent really that ultimately sort of not putting yourself in the center of what you're just saying there talk about like when so whenever I was a counselor at the culture camp uh, we would always sit with like the parents tables to like chat and encourage like conversation with us as adult adoptees and I remember I was sitting at this one table and it was a bunch of uh, a group of moms Mm -hmm. and they were talking about this topic of their kid going back Um, and these are parents who have like their kids aged at like maybe 10 to like 14 at this Mm -hmm. point so they're not adult adoptees, still still kids and teenagers. Um, so like the idea of going back is still something like new um, and like scary to them sometimes. And they were asking me like, oh my God, have you heard of that, that one adoptee who like went back to Korea and they never left and they just completely like exiled their adoptive family and they like hated their adoptive parent and like all of these things. <laughs> And like, have you heard of that? Like, that, what if that happens? Like all these like worst case scenarios, mm-hmm. but that's what they would talk about. And like, that's what like the, would get in their head. And like, that's how they would think about their kid going back. What if that happened? Mm-hmm. But the, yeah, there was so much like fear of, of, of being left by their own kid. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> I know, which, yeah, which is yeah. very ironic. I would try to be like, no, no, like mm-hmm. it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Like most, most cases, it doesn't happen mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> But it was, it was interesting, yeah. Did any of your parents sort of worry about you two going abroad? Um, for which part? For me living in Vietnam or, mm. or traveling back to China with her for the first time? Um, to Vietnam, getting the sense of liking it there, liking in an East Asian country. No, only because my mom, both of my moms um, in particular are are really supportive of traveling and they love traveling and like they were kind of the ones to like initially encourage me to travel abroad live abroad just kind of get out of Kansas City mm-hmm. which I think is different from like any of my friends in general's parents ideas and stuff so my mom I, I think is kind of like a unique case because <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't think most parents would encourage their 19 year old to go live in Vietnam for indefinitely by themselves <laughs> but um no she did and I don't think that they ever feared of me like never coming back because I think that they 
they want me to, you know, live my life mm. and experience new things. I don't think that they want me to get, they've always framed it as like, don't get stuck in Kansas City. Like, <laughs> <laughs> go, go, go. <laughs> um, but no, my, my parents have always been like really encouraging on like traveling and living abroad. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Drew? Um, nah, I think they know Nephi needs a dog. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I'm not I mean it is something that came up my mum's interview that it, there was that that irrational nagging fear um it was something that she, she was like this is something that is a me I want to say it's a me problem but it's like something that I need to work through myself and it's not something that I want to let affect my relationship with Joe but um yeah I mean they came over they came over and they visited me and like we've got quite a good relationship with my birth family I mean they actually have a slightly better relationship with my birth family than I do and so like I think they're very happy that we've got that link and that you know we were able to go back and be part of my sister's wedding and there are milestones that we'll be able to be present for but I think they know that it's not something that I'm going to lay up and leave them for either. Thanks for listening. Um, Whatever Next has chosen to help support Rape Crisis Scotland uh, because of all the work that they do to help end sexual violence. They work with 17 independent local rape crisis centres spread across Scotland, as well as running a national helpline year-round to support anyone affected by sexual violence. They also work with schools to help teach consent and safe sex and campaign to change legislation and attitudes that allow sexual violence and those who practice it to prevail. Um, it goes without saying that ending sexual violence is a matter that each of us take very seriously. Um, that's why we've decided to donate the profit raised from some of the stickers that we're selling to Rape Crisis Scotland. If you want to head over to our website, um, they're on sound also through our Instagram if you just want to DM us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Whatever Next. You can find more of our episodes on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. With thanks to Andy Lum for editing and mixing this episode, Whatever Next is produced by Solus Sounds. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.